Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Okay, so we had a hiatus of a couple of weeks. We did. A little, little bit of uh, COVID exposure scare, but yes, we, are, we are back. We're still good. So we are, we that's are good. Nice. We, I did not get COVID, so yeah. thank goodness. My kids did not get COVID, but right. we're back. And this week we want to talk about, um, I guess, when it makes sense to move forward I, I guess it's language features, evolution of languages. <clears throat> when you know, when when does it make sense to move forward? Yeah. And so we're thinking about this in the context of Java first, mm -hmm. and how Java has added a lot of language features over the last few years. Um, maybe last, let's say, five years or something. Yeah. Uh, starting with Java eight and lambdas, or what do we call them in Java? Um, I think we still call them lambdas. Call them yeah. lambdas. Yeah. Um, I should know, but I forget after I write it down in a book. It's like, it's in the book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and all the stream stream, stream stuff. stuff. Yeah. And uh, and then modules in Java 9. Uh, uh, well, I guess I, I'm now thinking in terms of the long-term releases because I've now become suspicious of features in the intermediate releases because they seem like they're experimental features and they don't always make it yeah. to the long-term releases. That's my perception. I may be wrong. I think, well, so I think on that, they, they realized that they couldn't really get enough feedback on language feature changes yep. unless it was an actual release. That, that is my perception. So it's a little bit of a, hmm. Yeah. But, but anyway, that's how it works. So yeah. And modules and, like the uptake of modules isn't that great and they didn't include versioning and, and well, so my experience that kind of brought this up was I, I realized that in, I was been working on updating the Java on Java eight book and, um, and I realized, Oh, I've got at override in some places, but not everywhere. And I had to hunt through the book and I know there are tools, but that's, you know, anyway, so I went through and did that and it felt like kind of a half feature. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, if you use it and remember to use it, then it can help you in some situations, but it's not like Kotlin's override, which you have to use. Yeah. And it, it just makes such a difference. And then I also just this last week I was working on, um, I, I had a mistake around, uh, object equivalence yeah and i and i thought oh this this should only take a few hours to fix and it's been days and delving in discovering all kinds of weird things about the way object equivalence works and i assumed that in java 9 the like you're with with numbers like you're not supposed new integer and new float new double etc those are deprecated in java 9 and beyond and I thought, oh, well, that's to fix the thing I'm looking at, which is the weird object equivalence thing. I posted the thing on um, on Reddit, and somebody came back, and they go, no, it's for efficiency. And I'm thinking, I have never Wait, seen... Wait, so they, we're supposed to use primitives again? No, no, we're supposed to use value of. And if you, for example, if you say... No, um, it's a static method on those... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's integer dot value of, and, and if you actually say, um, uh, integer X equals 11, it will translate that to a call to value of, but new integer 11 
is apparently so in a, so what's weird about this like is that I've in an unboxing overhead or uh, well, it's the call to, the, you know, it's doing the normal new call, yeah. which you do with every other class in Java. Well, yeah. except strings. It's, you know, all these special cases, but Isn't I it after new an instance of it anyway. No, it's using the value of is using well, and it does all kinds of things under the cover. In fact, the behavior is different if if the number is in the range of uh, minus 128 to 127, oh, if it's, it's like in a, the it's a static pool of, of values. some sort of caching. And then if you're outside of that, the behavior is different. It's like, wow, all of this to, to just use numbers. But the thing that blew my mind was because I assumed that, well, of course, they're deprecating new integer for some, you know, it's probably the reason I'm finding because you have people having programming problems, but somebody on Reddit said, no, it's for efficiency. And I have never encountered anything that was deprecated for efficiency reasons. Huh. And yeah. that means that the efficiency has to be so terrible that they actually said, oh, we need to deprecate this. And I, I just, huh. I'm still kind of reeling from that going, wow, I, yeah. I didn't know that was an option when it came to, to deprecation. a constructor <laughs> mm -hmm. of basic number type that's that's all of them well. in fact all of the boxed primitive you know all the types wow. that reflect primitive yeah. boxing and i mean it's you know kotlin of course removes all that and and then using the equals equals sign yeah. uh don't use that you have to use object uh, i mean you have to use dot equals except when you're using primitives when equals equals actually does work. Uh, and it's like, oh, okay. And beginning programmers are supposed to understand this. And I mean, I wasn't aware of this. Yeah. And, and I mean, I don't even know when this became a thing. You know, I feel like some earlier, like when I wrote Thinking in Java, I thought, okay, I've got this understood and, you know, do it this way. But apparently I, I didn't understand it fully then. Yeah. And this is just numbers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just and, pretty basic. And it's like, oh, box use primitives box or use box things or use. Well, yeah. So, so like technology has to evolve, mm -hmm. but it's a really hard thing to figure out. As you evolve it, you put a burden on your users to then have to come along with you. And I think that with all the new great stuff that's going into Java, people aren't adopting it. Like most production, the vast majority of production stuff is still on Java 8. And even the stuff that has generally moved forward to newer. Well, Java and how many people are using, are the, using Java the Java 8, 8 stuff? Syntax. Yeah. yeah. And then even a lot of the Java 8. Are they using streams? Are they using lambdas? Those are new concepts, you know? I think there's a lot of Java programmers who aren't adopting those features even. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, they're they're challenging and so so there's and and it's a huge impact to your code base so if you're if you have a legacy code base and you want to move to new language features there's there's potentially a lot of things that need to be changed and rebuilt like to move from normal for loop stuff to the world of streams that's a big change for people and you have to i mean streams are not it's not as simple as just saying, oh, I'm using a stream now. You have to understand, you know, there's some there are trade-offs and things. You don't automatically get better performance just by 
maybe you get worse performance in some cases. Some cases, the, some cases you do. The uncertainty of that, I'm right? Because sure like because you can you know you can put in a parallel thinking oh well this will make it run faster and it can make it run slower, yeah. and you have to you have to understand those things or else yeah. you get well. And we were also talking about goes. Um, template or generics that they're adding yeah and we were looking at the the document and it's got to be like in print form two to three hundred pages long i would guess significantly long i i will say that it looks much more like a book than a spec it's got lots of examples it looks like it's like bringing people into it well but wow i mean that's a big change change. for go yeah and, and in that example i think that the usefulness of the language feature depends on the ecosystem adopting it. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there can be a bit of a chicken and egg with these new features where for generics and go to really be useful and take off, people have to adopt it, but people aren't going to adopt it until the ecosystem has adopted it. And so it, it just could take a long time and a lot of work. Well, with Python from two to three and, how long it took to move an ecosystem forward to the new stuff. Which was not nearly, I mean, in my, my impression was not nearly as big of a change. It was, it enabled bigger changes moving forward, but the change from two to three itself yeah. wasn't that huge, yeah. but it caused. Yeah, not as big as generics. Not as oh my gosh, no, not as big as yeah. generics. And um, it's, yeah, it, 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 I mean, I guess we were talking about this as like, if you're running a business, how important are new language features to you? And I would say for, I mean, conservatively, 90% of businesses, they're just going, we're just trying to create a thing to solve our problem. It's great what that we you, have works. what we have works and we have programmers who understand it. And what is it going to cost us to move to that new feature? And what benefits are we going to get? And, you know, we were observing that, probably those companies are going to benefit way more from uh, process changes. I mean, there's still a lot of companies that are not using version control and testing and um, just kind of basic programming practices are a whole lot more impactful to hugely impactful. Like if they're not doing a new language feature. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, and well, and because they're not doing those things, they're not even ready for a new language feature. They're, they're still, thrashing around with um you know no pointer exceptions yeah well for example i mean that's the thing you know and that that is actually a good example because i mean java added optional and people aren't using that well they're not using it and i don't know if i know with java does adding optional really i mean because you'd have to use it Every, you'd have to just rewrite your code base and use it everywhere. When yeah, when the I whole point of it is that it, it propagates that information throughout the call chain. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has to. Well, I mean, it's it's like you know, it's like monads. It's the same thing. You have to use them everywhere for it to work. And uh, and <laughs> monads all the way down, or no monads at all. Kind of, kind of, yeah. It, that's it, probably true with a lot of language features, like even generics and Go. It's like. <laughs> For it to really shine and and show its value, it has to be everywhere. And one of the things that was a real problem with uh, Python was um, newer code and how it interacted with older code. Uh, and you know, and I, so I'm wondering. Well, okay, if you start using generics in Go, and you use an existing library 
Is that going to be a problem? I mean, maybe yeah, not. It's the interim. Maybe maybe it'll well, be fine. Like if you call a function and you've got something with generic information on it, you kind of expect to get that generic information back out. Mm-hmm. Does that happen? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe yeah. the and if well, my guess is that well, I don't know. Are they using erasure? Right. You know, are they yeah. are they taking the C plus plus approach where you actually keep the type information, the compiler knows it and can use it? Yeah. It, it's yeah. So. Um, so a startup idea yes, for our listeners, uh-huh. somebody should do this, is we, we know that technology needs to evolve. At least I think it does. I, I like that technology evolves. but And I like to stay up on the latest and continue to move forward. But for a lot of people, the investment in that is not really worth it. And so why can't we automate it? Why can't we have tooling that automates the the migration to newer things for us take for example github we have a giant giant code base on github that's public that you could diff and say all right this thing moved from this version to this version let's let's take a corpus of everything that changed when they made that particular change and let's feed that into some ai system and start to build an intelligent AI from this corpus of GitHub changes. We're just giving up and calling it AI now. Is that that's right? Yeah, it's, we, it's it's not it's not intelligence, but we're just gonna we're not gonna use machine learning anymore. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. So couldn't couldn't we build a smart AI based on GitHub as a corpus that could help us migrate to newer things? I've imagined, a, you know, some language that somebody's going to invent in the future. Well, and Kotlin has done this with the, you know, IntelliJ. Like you, you can, you, you can apparently click on a Java file and you can say convert it to Kotlin, and it's been getting better and better. Yep. But I could imagine somebody coming up with a language, and they say, and we have the automation. You know, we've designed the language around being able to do automatic conversion. Yep. To the, and to me, that would allow it to take off so much faster. Yeah. Plus, yeah. the language would have to be really carefully designed. Yeah. I think there are cases where you can't automate it. Like, like take, for example, the nullability optional one. If you took an existing Java code base mm. that had no information about nullability in it, and you said convert this to a null safe code base, it would just throw an optional everywhere. Like everything would become an optional, and that is. Wouldn't that still be better though? I mean, at least you'd have it laid out for you, and yeah. you could make the you could change away from optional if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I feel like that would still be helpful. Yeah. It's just not as good as like actually doing a smart conversion, but you can't because the information isn't there yeah. in, the, in the Java code. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because the things that you're calling aren't conveying optionality, uh, then everything is optional. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything because happens. it doesn't have the good enough compile time checking it just it just says well we'll throw an exception if something goes wrong right so it's all yeah 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 so i could see challenges with with it but it feels like we got to have some way to to evolve more easily more fluidly in a way that doesn't cost us so much so that people can adopt new things 
and because it's it's a huge um it's a refactoring though and you have to have the tests in place to validate refactoring yeah sometimes it doesn't feel like we're just in the stone ages with this we are we are i know people in the future okay so this is going to sound weird but sometimes i think what if we're in a museum it's in the future we're in a museum and we're learning the history, the origins of computer programming. And like we go up to this machine and I don't know, we put our eye up to it or something like that. And in a fraction of a second, we're living our lives. So it's like you're, you're experiencing the development of computer science through yeah. your experience. And both of us have, you know, we, we have pretty interesting experiences. We meet lots of people who are, you know, pioneers in the field and we we see these things and these struggles and it's like wouldn't that be a great way to learn the history of computer science so and then there wouldn't be any free will because we're just playing a tape Uh, anyway that's that's, that is deep but Uh, you know that's way off the edges there anyway but bring us back james yeah so i mean if we if we were in the future looking back Mm -hmm. it would be like what they didn't have tests like that was they just, didn't even think about tests right. until this guy thought, "Hey, we should have tests." Kent right. Beck, I guess. Uh, memory management, like manual memory management, just seems like why in the world would you ever? I can answer that. It's because we came from assembly language where memory was so precious yeah. that you had to, and that's why we have vars instead of vowels. It's because oh, you yeah. got to reuse that memory, and so we, and the and the cultural change that it takes to get us thinking in this, I mean, it's just like the Java eight streams and lambdas. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a pretty deep change. Yeah. You know, it's, that's a real, I feel like I was only comfortable with it because Diane and I had written the Scala book. And so we had gotten our teeth into it and then it didn't seem so weird, but, but for somebody who's coming from Java, a lambda, I mean, it's just a little nameless function with different syntax. It took me a long time to kind of really wrap my head around it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, well, plus there's the confusion that's introduced by the languages themselves when they call them closures. Because having a, you know, a closure is nothing to do with a lambda. It's just saying, oh, this nested function can close over the surrounding variables. Well, it it could be any function. It doesn't. But then... Some of them just call them closures, and you're going, oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I've been building a list of things that I think that we'll look back on and be like, yeah, (laughs) that was a bad idea. Mutability being, like, one of the top ones. Builder patterns, of course. Exceptions. Um, There's a few other things on my list. Uh, Oh, back to memory management. Well, I would say exceptions for everything, but go ahead. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, ex- exceptions, which the goal is recoverability and most of the things that people throw them for are not yeah. recoverable. So it's, it's a bad use of them. Yeah. Um, back to memory management. I saw a great tweet this week that was like, uh, C also known as a domain specific language for, um, memory based vulnerabilities or something along those lines. It was like, yeah, like, cause, oh, because, uh, there's just a vulnerability found in pseudo, um, Oh yeah, the the of course was because of you know some buffer overflow or something. It's like why why are we why are we still managing this memory buffer sizes and stuff like on our own? 
I I guess I've met enough people who have, you know, the thing is they're usually pretty smart, but they're still subject to the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I would say with um, things like that, you know, low-level details, oh, yeah, I can get it right. I used to program in assembly language, so, you know, I can figure that out. I, I mean, like myself... I wrote a floating point math library in assembly language. I I have no recollection of any of that, but I know that I did it. And, and it's like, Hey, I'm smart. I can do those things. And the other thing is concurrency, of course, you know, and, and I've met so many people when I try to say, you don't have the capability to do this. Do not try Do you know, do whatever you can to guard yourself against yeah, it's, it's like find the stud in the wall and anchor yourself to that. Um, yeah. And but they'll say, oh, well, I know you don't think you can do it, but but I can do it. <laughs> and and there's no there's no talking them out of that. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, there is this maybe as programmers, we have this ego complex around thinking that we can solve any problem. Uh, and I, this came up recently for me because I started using yet another declarative, uh, workflow engine. Oh, what's that? Uh, In this case, it was GitHub actions. Oh yeah. And so, um, which are great, like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, but it's, it's YAML and it's declarative. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of how I, uh, a few years ago had built in my case, a JSON based workflow engine. And I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but it reminded me how all of these declarative workflow languages, just slippery slope towards a general purpose programming language. And mine certainly did. Like there was a point where, where I was starting to like implement JSON based, um, uh, Boolean um, logic. And I'm like, this is going too far. Like, why am I writing my own programming language? And, <laughs> and so um, with, with that project, you know, bo- the Boolean logic, I was like the first moment when I realized, all right, I am sliding here and it is not good. And, and why, why did I, and so many other people, go this 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 route well let's just do the simple part and that'll be fine and then you just keep inching my father used to call it inching and then pretty much uh, and and i i know when it happened with make and they go they like get up to the precipice and they go oh we're trying to do that and we don't want to do that so we got to stop now yeah in my tweet about this i was like you know, at the point where you have to start learning Lambda calculus to build your type system for your declarative workflow system, like that's the point, I think, when you like like look over the prep, uh, precipice and are like, this has gone too far. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so so w- with GitHub Actions, I discovered uh, in the last few days as I was diving into GitHub Actions but that they don't really have a good composability model, of course, because you know that's we didn't think about that up front. So uh, so GitHub Actions, it, it's hard to kind of compose um, code across across them. Same is probably true for most uh, homegrown workflow declarative languages, um, but. An intern at GitHub started working on a way to do composability inside of GitHub Actions, you know, with fancy YAML syntax. And I'm like, this has gone too far, people. Like, like step away from the cliff. Let's rethink this whole thing. 
maybe we need to take the approach that people would, well, I, I mean, basically uh, TypeScript does this. They go, let's create another language that translates into that language. Well, so one of the declarative workflow tools that I've used, mm -hmm. which the, the, the language that actually you give the system to run is YAML, mm -hmm. but they've created a Python um, language that then compiles the Python into the declarative YAML. But of course, like there's just limitations. Like like the, the YAML is not Turing complete whatever. And so uh, and so So they constrain you have the to constrain Python what you can do in your Python mm -hmm. so that it's convertible to the YAML. So it's so basically like, a different language. Yeah. Like because and, and that's another problem that I see is like people go, well, it's the same with, with Gradle. It was like, oh, we'll just create this declarative language and we'll build it on top of Groovy. But you won't really have to know Groovy, and and if you do, then there's Groovy to to solve your problems. But ultimately, now you have to learn this different language. Whereas, you know, maybe it would have been better. I mean, if I was doing a build tool for Java, I think I would probably try and use Java because people already know Java. It's not, yeah, and Groovy is like Java, but it's different in so many other yeah. ways that you're learning a different language. But Java didn't have the DSL capabilities to make for a nice experience. I think I would have gone the other direction and said, well, all right, let's do whatever we have to do to work within Java. You know, mm -hmm. don't use a DSL mm -hmm. or whatever, just, you know, create. But a, at least it would be Java. It so. would be Java. So you wouldn't have to learn a yeah. different language. Yeah, yeah I guess I haven't really seen someone do this well, where it's like, all right, here's your nice DSL, and you really don't have to learn the underlying general purpose language. Like that never happens, right? Like, not in my experience, but I, I mean, I haven't looked at everyone out there, but it does, you know, when Martin Fowler wrote his DSL book, there was a, there's a big, oh yeah, this is going to solve lots of problems. And it's kind of calmed down, and I wonder if it isn't because of exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. because, oh yeah, you're. It's the leaky abstraction thing yeah. again. It's like yeah. the abstraction is the DSL, and then it turns out that no, it's it's not. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It, it's gonna leak. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, and in the case of Scala, as I was learning Scala, there were so many times where yeah, I was kind of working in like a DSLE you know, usage of Scala, but there were so many times where I'd get a compiler and I would be like, I don't, <laughs> how do I understand this? And I couldn't. And so then it's like, all right, now I have to dive further into the general purpose language. You know, the alternative that people have brought up in response to topics we've had around this on the show before is something like DAL is maybe a better approach where you have not a general purpose language, you have a very constrained DSL, but at least like doll has features that you normally need if you are doing workflowy uh, type of things. And presumably maybe IntelliJ would be able to help you with it. Right. It would be clear enough. It wouldn't. I wonder if anybody has tried doll for a workflow engine. That would be interesting hmm. to know. Um, I'll have to look into that. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see like how this particular topic moves forward because i think where we're where we are today with all these different yaml based workflow tools it's not a good place like like there is something fundamentally wrong with the approach that we've taken here and we've there's got to be something better but okay and the reason that we're 
YAML and TOML and whatever uh, is because we had XML before and that was awful. And so by changing the syntax to be better, that was supposed to solve the problem. And you're saying, no, maybe the problem is declarative DSL approaches just are problematic. Are problematic, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so uh, composability, I think for me, is Mm. a really big one, Mm. is Mm -hmm. that when when I'm writing code, I build reusable pieces and I use libraries, which are reusable pieces. And that is a fundamental thing that I do uh, all day, every day. And, and when you're in the world of, of most declarative systems, there isn't the ability to do that. Like, look at SQL. Like, mm-hmm. like your reusability model in SQL it's is cut and paste. <laughs> It's, which is just makes me so sad. Um, so, so I think that that's, that's a big one for me. Um, obviously like the lack of type systems and the lack of schema definitions, like just hurts badly. Um, when I, whenever I'm writing these, whenever I have to interact with one of these YAML based declarative systems, my, my Git history is just like a hundred commits that say, try this, try this, try this, try this. It is a terrible, terrible way to, to, to test things and to validate that something works. Now, so when I put up the Gradle post that you know caused a bit of a ruckus, um, the reply from the person, he, some, some... Yeah, Cedric. Cedric, yeah. Not, not Cedric Booth. No. But the other. Yes. Uh, he... Well, one of the things he said, which I wasn't aware of, which was, oh, no, you're not supposed to do it this way. You're supposed to use plugins. Right? Okay. Yeah. And which I didn't know. Oh, you're supposed to use plugins for things. You're supposed to write your own plugins. Okay. And um, I mean, isn't that supposed to be like a reuse thing? Or I mean, why, why, why would I write a plugin except for reuse? I mean, even for us, I mean, even for one of the case challenge in the case of Gradle is that you, if you need to hook into life cycle parts of the build and change things, you can do that right in your build, Mm -hmm. or you can write a plugin that, that hooks into those things. So you've, you, the build tools exposed both of those ways to do that. And when you should do, which I think you're, my assumption is that you write a plugin if you want to share it with others. Um, that, but but maybe what Cedric was saying was that no, the plugin model gives you a better way to to tap into those those hooks and make those modifications. It was, I mean, this was the first time I had come across this way of thinking, and I'm not sure if he's thinking of it in terms of well, it's just easier to organize your code that way, or if what you're saying is like, oh well, it's nicer to know. At this point in the life cycle, the plugin gets called and it does its thing. And yeah, I don't know. There's more explicit life cycle kind of uh, call chain. It's just new, newer things. You know, it's like this is more information. I, my problem was that I kept wanting to go where they said, which is, oh, you just, it's easy. You just do this and it's declarative and it works. And then 
and I kept thinking, oh, I must be doing it wrong because I'm not getting that experience. Yeah. And then when I finally realized the things that I put down in the blog post, then it's like, oh, I see. I have to learn way more yeah. to get it to work. And this is one of those things. It's like, oh, we're supposed to use plugins. I so guess. as an example of this, in the world of Maven, the language that you write your build in is, is XML declarative. Mm -hmm. And, and can, Ant was like that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you cannot uh, hook into build modifications via that XML declarative approach. If you do want to make, if you do want to hook into the lifecycle, you write a plugin. Mm -hmm. And that separation it has trade-offs because it's kind of painful. It's like, okay, now I got to go into the world of building my own plugin and, and, um, but at least you know that's why you're doing it. Yeah, you're going. You're hooking into the life cycle steps. It's pretty clear where the boundaries are mm -hmm. and when to use which. It's mm -hmm. actually 100 percent clear because mm -hmm. <laughs> you just can't do things on the declarative side. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that those those constraints are really useful, um, but also are painful. Because mm -hmm. because when you need to when you need to write a plugin, it's like oh god, now I got to go write a plugin. Like it's you 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 don't really want to take that that step um, usually. And I've done it, and like it turns out fine. But then you know, it just it becomes well. If you're trying horrible. to solve a problem, which is to get your thing to build, and then it says, oh, you need to take a week and learn how to write plugins so that you can get this thing to happen, and learn how to publish pl plugins and. Pull yes. in those plugins and right, yeah, I mean, and you're going, thing. you're going. Ah, oh, but I made an estimate, and this is going to blow my estimate, and that whole estimation thing is a whole is another <laughs> is another topic. But yeah. yeah, but I mean that's that's what I have to get over is because even though I have the in, you know, it's just my own schedule. It's just oh, but I had expectations that this was only going to take a few hours, and yeah. now it's going to take maybe a week, maybe longer. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then I just have to relax and go, okay, that's it's, I'm learning a new thing. This is fun. Yeah. And then it's okay. But oh, the first there's Sometimes that. the learning the new thing is not fun. I, I know, but I have to tell myself I'm learning a new thing. It'll be fun in order to get myself to do lie, it. Cause otherwise I'm going, and... damn it. It just work. Just work. <laughs> Oh, it's like yeah. what we were struggling with last night with the SPT build. It's oh, like, man. that was just, just head pounding. Just, yeah. Oh. Yes. Well, I think we, we probably should have stopped sooner and gone to a higher authority. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we should have. Yeah. Uh, if, if Josh threat was not on East coast time, uh -huh. I think I would have gone that route yeah. earlier, but right. I didn't want to ping no. him at 11 PM his time. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, as you know, I'm not very good at just like being like, okay, I'm going to give up on this for a while. Let's, mm -mm. I just keep. You pounding. need that little endorphin bump that you get by going, aha, got it working. <laughs> That's right. Which I, I yeah. totally understand. I mean, yeah, it feels really good when you get there. Yeah, but, it does. But my head sure, sure hurts. Yeah, wow. Slamming it into the wall. Well, but I mean, you didn't, there was no guidance. It was just like, oh, maybe if we do this, maybe if we do that. No. Yeah. No, nothing that, although we did. That's one of the challenges back to the original yep. conversation around adopting new things mm -hmm. is that when you are kind of the first one to, to try something, 
you don't have that guidance. You don't have the stack overflow posts. You don't have, and so I think that that's one of the kind of chicken and egg problems with language feature adoption or any, maybe any technology, new technology adoption is that you just don't have the ecosystem to go to to get your help. And so then you, your only thing you can do is go to the experts and and that's often they have limited difficult. bandwidth yeah they have, they have that. but will it scale <laughs> there you go um and and we're lucky because we often can reach the experts right yeah 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 so that's that's certainly one of the challenges with moving things forward is like to move forward a lot of times you need you need other people to move forward before you <laughs> and uh, somebody's got to do it. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, a lot of people have to do it so that there's sufficient answers on Stack Overflow. <laughs> when I started working with C++, I was at the University of Washington in the School of Oceanography, and we were going to use it to try and do cool math things for for physicists. And um, uh, to get the compiler we actually had to contact Strustrup and ask him to send us a tape, you know, cause the internet wasn't fast wow. enough, I guess, or something. Anyway, I mean, and we were on a backbone, you know, yeah. the, anyway. Um, and the way I ended up figuring things out was at looking at the output of Seafront, which is what we had takes your C and converts it to C. And so I'm, you know, looking over the C trying to figure out what is this virtual function thing? Why are we doing this? And, uh, and just kind of going through and going, finally figuring out, oh, it's like calling a different function depending on the type. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I don't know how to design. Why would you, you know, nobody knew how to design with this. It was, yeah, that was, that was. Uh, just, yeah, just uncharted territory. It where, was, yeah. it was. And no, no, uh, no Bruce Eccle book to read to learn about it. Yeah, yeah, it was uh no, it was quite an adventure. Yeah. I mean, it was very interesting, yeah. but uh but it was slow. I guess that's why technology adoption takes longer than than I hope is that that there's got to be like, you know, the early people that, you know, stumble through and talk to the experts whatever, figure things out and then, you know, some people behind them that, you know, pick up some of their things and it's just like to move ecosystems forward it takes a lot of energy. It's not really, I mean, I wouldn't even call it the ecosystem. I would call it the culture because the culture. it's how, how do we, how do we think and talk about these things? I mean, we've had this, you know, I feel like we're close to being able to explain monads to people easily, but think about what we had to do. We had to struggle with the ideas and then go, wait a minute, why are we doing this? And that was, to me, that was the breakthrough. It's like, oh, we're doing this so that we have composability, um, ultimately. Well, we want to be able to chain things together, and we don't want to have to do all of the error checking every time. But in the meantime, people were explaining this using burritos. And it's like, that was such a non-star. I mean, it was like, didn't tell me anything. Right. You know, just tell me, packaging information together it just just and, and then passing it from function to function yeah. it's like i guess okay. that's part of the ecosystem thing is that you need people to try to explain it in lots of different ways and you know like emergent chaos theory evolution yeah evolution like eventually mm -hmm. 
if something is important enough, it is going to emerge out of that and be a better way. It's a combination of the environment and all of the various experiments that evolution is doing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, people understand this thing and we, one of these things actually works with what they understand already. Yeah. Uh, and that's the one that succeeds. Yeah, evolution is just so slow. It's just a really Well, slow physical process. evolution is. I, even like... like Cultural evol evolution, which Cultural is memes. evolution. Like, how do we accelerate it? How do we make this faster? Because I'm not happy with how slow technology adoption evolution is I know, is I know. Happening. I know it needs it's to move faster. It does. I mean, I've always felt this way. I've always been trying to reach into the future and go, um, okay, yeah, now we have we, we want this problem to be solved so that we can do this more powerful thing and not be wasting our time. This is why I have mixed feelings about Rust is because it's like it feels like it's going backwards to say, "Oh, you got to do your own memory management." But you get super speed from it. And it's like, yeah. okay, for little tiny solutions, I'm fine. You know, Python plugins, great. You know, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to manage my own memory or any of that kind of stuff. And I'm always thinking, you know, what, or, or this language that we've been talking about that's based on the idea of versions. Um, what's uh, it called? Unison. Unison. It's like, oh, yeah. What, or even, I mean, you know, in my study of organizational structures, you know, figure out what are your fund. It's the architecture thing. What are your fundamental concepts that you need to nail down? Everything else can vary around that, but you need to at least have versioning, for example, or yeah. generics have to be built in from the beginning, or you know, or you know, any number of things have to be these fundamental concepts that we get built in, and then we're not going to go down a path and discover, oh, gosh, Go really needs generics or else we're not going to be able to move ahead. Now we're going to have to backport them in and it's going to maybe break code or who knows. And then you have to move your whole ecosystem. Yes. Forward. You have all these people who've learned Go and now there's Go with generics that they yeah. have to acquire. And a lot of, a lot of them are not going to want to do that. Yeah. Maybe they should have called it a different language <laughs> and say, yeah, this, I guess it, for them, it becomes a maintenance issue because they're going, now oh, we can't maintain go and maintain this other thing. Yeah. I guess that was the Python two, Python three thing where mm -hmm. they reached the point where they're like, okay, we got to make some fundamental changes here so that we can continue to move forward. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be painful and it's going to take a while because we've got to move a whole ecosystem. Um, but we have to do it if we want to, continue moving and python is close to one of the most popular languages in the world now yeah. which i never expected yeah but i don't know that that would have happened without yeah, python 3 yeah. yeah and i was talking to somebody the other day about uh, like ruby and just like i don't know ruby's just off my radar now i guess there's plenty we'll of still people. use it but yeah it's, it doesn't seem like it's uh, mm. growing it's not a growing language it's not my impression no yeah. So, um, yeah, I think you, you know, you, you have to, sometimes you gotta kind of fix the foundation, go back, uh, and, and that can be painful. Well, and, and ultimately it is about, I mean, not just money cost, but cost in general. It's like how much 
of my time, especially as we are trying to build bigger and more complex systems, how much of my time does it take, especially when I'm going, oh, wait, should I use primitives? Should I use these other things? Is my comparisons going to work right? It's like, use a constructor for this thing? Or or should I not? Yeah, how do I do that? And it's like, so part of my brain is taken up by that, and that impacts my productivity. And uh, so, but I, I mean, I, my impression is that's the way Java is now and forever. I don't think they're ever going to fix that. Um, I mean, I don't think they, I think they see value of as the fix. Um, So if you really want to improve your productivity, you need to move to the next big version of Java, which is Kotlin. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then and then you're not struggling with all of those things all the time. Yeah. Oh, wait, do I use equals equals here? Or do I use <laughs> dot, equals. dot equals? I, oh, I, I'll go look that up right. rather than just programming ahead going, yeah. yeah, this all makes sense to me and yeah. I can continue. So that that's a, that's a pretty big impact. Yeah. But if you're a company, you're working, things are working for you. Um, what, what reason do you have to change? Yeah, I, I did a Twitter survey a while back where I was like, all right, if you're like an enterprise Java developer, for you, why haven't you adopted Kotlin yet? And I gave some options. I don't remember what they all were, but one of the options, the by far the most voted answer um, was that that the they don't perceive enough value. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that caused me to, like for me, I'm like, Oh, of course, Kotlin has significant value over. Yeah, Java, but we delve into all of that stuff all the time, and yeah. we have personal experience with the productivity. But when you're looking at it from the business standpoint, the other thing is how you know we don't perceive enough value. What other information do they have? They have to to guess at it. There's no like they have no guarantee, and and as we had argued before, their value probably would be much greater improved in process and stuff like that. Right. So, um, and, and, you know, you come and go, Oh, it has all these great features and they go, how is this going to help my business? Right. Probably isn't. Yeah. It probably isn't. Yeah. It's a, it's a really good way to think about it. Cause I'm, um, right now I'm, I'm working on rebuilding the, uh, cloud.google.com slash Kotlin page. And as part of that, I want to pitch like, okay, if you're a Java developer, here's why you should be using Kotlin. And so the things I've been thinking about is like nullability, type inference, like, you know, a lot of the uh, immutability, like a lot of the things that I love about Kotlin. But I think when I say those things to most Java developers, they're like, eh. Nullability, though, that would probably, I mean, Bill's experience when he was experimenting with Kotlin for for this previous company was that that was the hugest improvement was that that uh you know, so even for i think a lot of java developers there if a null pointer exception pops up in production they don't care it's not their problem that's like op, the ops team has to deal with those like production null pointer exceptions and mm-hmm. like the cost of of dealing with nullability is is significant to them and the 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 cost of a possible null pointer exception maybe in production is like maybe minimal. And I mean, if, if you're writing some uh, 
something that's like doing stock trades or, you know, financial stuff, then maybe that's not true. Maybe in that case, you really don't want a no pointer exception to blow up a transaction or something. But um, a lot of those companies, a lot of fintech companies are, are like using Python. Yeah. So who, who knows? Yeah. And if you put yourself, I mean, imagine yourself in the position of like the CEO of some small to medium sized company and some, you know, a couple of language wonks like you and me come and go, oh man, this is awesome. This is everything. How would they look to you? They would look like, like just. Their, what goes through their mind is how much am I going to need to spend to train my developers to learn this new thing? Uh, they're going to think about as I hire new developers, it's going to be really hard because this is some new language for language wonks. Uh, they're going to think about like possible production issues that this is going to, that this is going to cause, um, you know, where they're balancing all this against like, I got a system that works now. I got, it works. And I, it's pretty easy to add new things to it if we need to, like, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all understandable, controllable, that illusion of control is, uh, is big. And so, so I could see, you know, the executives being like, no way. And these guys are totally deep in their rabbit hole about, you know, language features and how these things work. And I mean, they look very out of touch with the business at large, you know, and, and for sure. I mean, and there are cases like when um, Yahoo was started, um, they used uh, some kind of Lisp to create it. And apparently it was tremendously beneficial to do that. Um, I mean, the, huh. w- one of the guys became a VC investor and he, Oh, Y Combinator, the guy who oh, okay. created Y Combinator. And he, um, he would talk about, yeah, we, we decided Lisp was the, the good thing to use for this. And huh. it had all kinds of benefits, but you really have to, I mean, it's an architecture thing. Again, you have to go, what kind of problems are we solving and how is this or that technology going to make that easiest to yeah. uh, flow and, and, add into the future you know and wow that's a that's a crapshoot in itself you know it depends on who you're talking to (laughs) because somebody's going to say my favorite language is clearly the answer it's it's called motivated reasoning are you familiar with the term no okay so motivated reasoning it's pretty straightforward it just means you're you have an underlying you know so if somebody somebody comes to me and says what you know what how should i solve this problem um, if I'm going to be involved, I'm going to say, oh, you know, probably, probably the best choices would be Kotlin or Python, you know, mm-hmm. but that's because I want to program in those languages. Right. So I'm motivated yeah. to, to reach that conclusion. And, yeah. uh, it's, huh. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. pretty basic. It's just a bias. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But certainly, um, impacts a lot of how decisions are made. I'm sure. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, and we're not aware of it. I mean, most of the time we're not aware of it. It's just like, well, you know, in the back of your head, you're going, well, I want to use this language. And, you know, if you don't, I'm going to go to some other company or or something, or or it's going to be painful for me or something. And uh, I mean, I had a, like one of my best consulting jobs was a company and I think they were using Java and they brought me to help them use Java better. And I ended up, showing them how Python worked and 
and they switched over to Python, but it was because they liked it. And also most of them were not computer scientists. They were, you know, they all had masters and PhDs in, in, you know, mathy things or other things. And so it was just a lot easier for them to, to go to. So it was a good choice, but I, you know, if I had been a, say, a, a, I don't know, Ruby wonk, I probably could have motivated them to, to, oh yeah, Ruby's the best thing or something like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, interesting. Well, back to our original thing. I don't know. I don't know. I do. I do think that generally we need to move faster and help people move faster into adopting new language features, new things, new approaches, but I don't know how to, um, help with that acceleration. This reminds me of looking at um, organizational structures, and you know, once you read reinventing organizations, and you go, "Oh, it is possible to have a flat model," and then you think about how would I change an existing company to use a flat model? I would go in, and I would talk to the people who had spent their entire lives reaching the top of the pyramid and say, I want you to give up all of your power. Right. And they would, they would say, what now? Yeah. And, and it wouldn't happen. And yeah. it doesn't. I mean, it's almost like the problems with Agile because yeah. Agile is giving up power to, you know, you're saying, okay, you get to make the business choices and we make the technical choices about this and things. And, you know, if we're not going to make it in time, we'll say, choose which one of these features you want. And their, their whole life has been, I demand what I want and I get it that when you're telling me I don't get everything that I want, I don't like that. And so they push back and that's why agile hasn't really flourished everywhere, even though, even if it makes everything more productive. And so you you have to give up control. And I think we're, kind of talking about a similar thing here Mm -hmm. and so my conclusion was if you want to create a flat organization you have to create that has to be in your foundational architecture is that it's flat and i wonder if the same isn't true with um technology choices it's like oh if you're going to create this you're you're not i mean it's the same thing that we've seen with languages trying to back bolt things on later it's like no generics really needs to be in from the beginning um, and you know, your attitude towards technology has to be established at the beginning. Is it, we're going to use all the best tools and do it right. Or is it uh, software is a liability and we're just going to treat it as, um, whatever we can get away with and, and, and not saying that that's not, yeah. not the right choice. You know, yeah. maybe the, maybe you're, you know, uh, what is it? The spreadsheet, uh, the Microsoft Excel now has, you know, lambdas that are whatever Turing complete or something. Right. I don't know. And it's like, maybe that's the right choice for yeah. some businesses. I, yeah. it's just not what you, you and I are not interested in those businesses. That's- we're interested in the ones that go, we're pushing the envelope so much yeah. that we understand the technology is fundamental to what we do. Yeah. And there's probably a bunch of business. I mean, it's hard for us to think that because we're going, no, it's, it's going to affect you everywhere. So you really, even if you're making grocery store checkout software, you should be using the most powerful. Reactive and immutable. And yeah. 
Because it's going to, I guess the real pitch is, is it going to make their ex- experience cheaper and faster and easier and stuff? Yeah. And that's, that's what's that's going to appeal. For. Yeah. yeah. That's what's going to appeal to them is the, yeah. And their business goals and, mm-hmm. and they don't want to hear down the road that, oh, if you had made this better choice at the beginning, they're going, no, just it's software, make it work, fix it. Yeah. You know, we just want to add this one feature. Why is that so hard? 